Lord God, we ask you to meet with us now in the power and presence of your Spirit. In your grace and mercy, open our eyes, our minds, and above all our hearts to the glory and the meaning of your word. More than this, Lord God, we ask you for the courage and wisdom to be not only hearers of your word, but doers also, in Jesus' name, for Jesus' sake. And Lord, if there are those here with us today who are not born again, who are not saved, who are not walking with you, who have fallen away from you, we pray that in your mercy you'd convict them of their sin, that they would escape, flee from the wrath to come, and know your forgiveness in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. My family were originally from Great Britain, but I grew up, as you can tell from my Robert De Niro, Bugs Bunny, James Cagney accent, New York City. People ask me why I live in England. Well, it's because I'm wanted in 36 states and the District of Columbia. <laughs> That's not really true, but it's not completely false either. My background was not the happiest. I was born about three miles as a crow would fly from the Statue of Liberty and about one mile from New York City at its closest point. I was actually born in New Jersey, but it was right immediately next to New York, opposite Manhattan. Three miles from the Statue of Liberty, one mile from New York City. And I grew up and I hung out in New York. Eventually, when I was older, I moved to Manhattan, went to university in Manhattan. But my family background was not a happy one. My parents eventually wound up divorced. Very unhappy childhood. I was forced by my mother to go to a Catholic school. And I was sent by my father to a Jewish community center. I was both sprinkled and clipped. I had a very bad feeling about religion. I saw it as corrupt and hypocritical. And in more recent years, when the pedophilia corruption about the Roman Catholic clergy was exposed in the international media, it did not come as a surprise to me. I already knew about the lesbianism among nuns, about the child abuse, about the homosexuality among priests. I'd always known that, but I was forced into it by my mother, who in her ignorance thought she was doing the right thing. Family's Irish background, and of course, Irish culture is saturated with superstition and alcoholism. My mother was not an alcoholic, but it was certainly my family. My father was not a good father. He was given to all kinds of things, from drink to gambling to God knows what. I did not grow up happy. Others had it worse, but I didn't have it good. It was a troubled time in America. It was a time where a black guy would come back from the Vietnam War and not be able to go to university in Alabama or Georgia. But then he was told he was being sent to fight for freedom. <coughs> Only when he came home, he didn't have any. That was not in New York, but that was the case in the South. And I remember as a kid in New York, my parents, they would take us on vacation in the summertime to Florida. We'd drive to the American South. And I would see signs like, white only. And this is the age of Martin Luther King and the Ku Klux Klan and all this. And coming from New York, I'd never seen anything like that. 
and my parents were trying to explain to me how it went back to the American Civil War and all this kind of stuff. It was strange to me. But it was also a time of a war that was very unpopular in America and unconstitutional. Congress has the right to declare war by the American Constitution, but it was a presidential war. And like a lot of other people of my generation, we questioned the establishment, which was the unforgivable sin. There was something called detente, brought about by an American president called Nixon, who was later forced to resign for political corruption. He was a corrupt man. He was a liar. He was, a, he was corrupt. He was caught in corruption and forced out of the White House. But he had something called detente. He was trading with the communists, with the Soviets, and he opened the door to China. At the same time, the Chinese and the Soviets were supplying the North Vietnamese with the weapons to kill Americans. So on one hand, they're doing business, they're aiding and abetting the enemy. International companies were doing business with the enemy, but they were telling us it was your obligation to go fight the enemy. The same today. They're saying you have to go fight Islamic terror at the same time they're in bed with the Saudi Arabians who fund the, te who fund the extremism that breeds it. Same kind of political corruption you see today. And I was caught up in this. I was coming into draft age. And like a lot of other people at that time, I was wanting to do good, much like those people you saw at the Live Aid concert yesterday. Right intention, but very naive. I became a Marxist. I became a communist. I thought that was the way to justice. But of course, I came to realize that was not the way to justice. It was even more unjust than what I was rebelling against. I read a book called Animal Farm when I was 14 by George Orwell, the English author, that even if the animals overthrow the oppressive farmer, the pigs will become even worse than the old one. There's a Hebrew term called Evid Kimloach. It's when the slave becomes the master, he becomes worse than the old boss. There was a song by a rock band that performed yesterday, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Even if you win the revolution, it's just welcome to the new one. And this began to drive me crazy, much like what we're seeing today. Now again, our ministry, Moriel, we run orphanages for AIDS babies in Africa. And people are protesting about the G8, the G8. Well, I go to Africa all the time. The G8 was not responsible for what Idi Amin did in Uganda. The G8 was not responsible for the genocide in Angola or Mozambique or the Central African Republic. The G8 was not responsible for what Mugabe is doing in Zimbabwe to his own people. We had to stop our work in Zimbabwe. We had one medical doctor left we, we were contacted with. He couldn't get petrol for his car to look after people who were dying with AIDS. I've seen the corruption of the dictatorships in Africa and the intertribal hatred, the open genocide in Rwanda and, and, and Burundi. So what I'm seeing now is what I saw in my youth. Why does the world not work? Even if you get rid of the old oppressor, why is the new one going to be just as bad, if not worse? I used to refuse to speak in South Africa because I was against apartheid. I wouldn't go to a church in South Africa if it was segregated. I just wouldn't go. But now, we, of course, we have missions in South Africa. But ever since the new South Africa, black unemployment has more than doubled. Black infant mortality has skyrocketed. Black longevity has plummeted. 
children, especially black children, are dying younger and faster than they ever were under the old apartheid. Why does the world get rid of one evil to replace it with another? Why is the world so evil? Why is it crooked? So I was a hippie. We were going to change the world. We were going to be the counterculture. Just like what you see yesterday, my generation began that stuff with Woodstock and the Isle of Wight and big political protests. We can force these politicians to do this and do that. That's what I believed. My motives weren't wrong, but I realized it just didn't work. In our hippie culture, instead of finding love and peace, what we found were things like venereal disease. People becoming junkies. Began with marijuana and LSD, but soon it was heroin and amphetamine. People I know dying of overdoses. Friends, people I grew up with, I used to get high with, dead in graves because of drugs. I became disoriented. And I became addicted to cocaine. But to support my cocaine habit, I had to deal cocaine. So I sold it. This was before crack and freebasing, but I injected and I sniffed it and so forth. And I became involved in all kinds of terrible things. It got worse and worse and worse. Not only was the world evil, my world was evil. I was just as corrupt as the establishment. My world of drugs, my world of sexual immorality, doing things with other people's daughters and sisters I wouldn't want somebody to do to mine. I was a hypocrite. Why is everything so evil? But I couldn't believe in religion. I had been a Marxist. I saw too much hypocrisy and too much corruption in religion. For me, Christianity was the Roman Catholic Church. It was lesbian nuns abusing children. It was homosexual pedophile priests. It was rabbis who simply were out of touch with what people really thought and believed and needed. I'd seen Christianity as I thought it was. And I'd seen Judaism and I rejected all of it. I was an agnostic. I would not believe what I could not prove. Now, I was not a down-and-out type drug abuser. I never liked junkies. I knew junkies, but I never liked them. I never liked alcoholics. I never liked people who were that way. I was what you might call a white-collar drug abuser. I was the kind of person that would get an education. I'd be the kind of person that would be active in a profession or a business and be with the upper-class drug crowd. Who wants to be a down-and-out junkie when you can be a high roller? That's the way I thought about it. And I began hanging out in the fringes of the rock music industry and going to parties with pop stars and things of that nature, major ones, the major ones of the day, bigger than the ones you saw yesterday on TV if you watch that thing. But I, and I'm not trying to name drop or anything, but I had met these guys and most of them were stupid people. The heroes of my generation were personally stupid. I mean, some of them weren't. David Bowie was an intelligent person when I met him, and John Lennon was a fairly intelligent person, but most of the ones I met were stupid. And I recall I was in New York at Mick Jagger's birthday party in 
the early 1970s on the roof of the St. Regis Hotel ballroom. And I was there and I was doing the cocaine and the drugs and the champagne. And all these kids who stood in line for hours and mailed postcards to see the Rolling Stones get tickets were down in the street getting tear gassed by the police in riots. Well, the Rolling Stones are up there with the children of the jet set of the rich and famous sipping the champagne, puffing on joints. Those were the heroes. They were out of touch with the kids who put them where they were. I saw nothing but hypocrisy in everything. I believed nothing anymore. There must be a way out of this. There must be a reason. I read philosophy. I tried all this. But the only thing I had left was science. The only thing I had left was science. So I studied science. I studied biomedical science. <coughs> I was determined to be a neuroendocrinologist. That was my interest. I wanted to work in biomedical research. And despite my lifestyle, I was able to do it. If I had a biochemistry exam or something, I would just take enough amphetamine to win the fifth at Newmarket and cram. <laughs> Drug-assisted academic progress. I wasn't the only one. It was widespread in those days, but it was the way it was. But I was frustrated. Why is the world so evil? Why is my world so evil? Why does nothing work? Why is everything hypocrisy? Why is it that these kids born in Africa are born with the death sentence hanging over their heads? Why is it if you have a revolution that the new hero is tomorrow's oppressor? Why is the world like this? I didn't know that Jesus said, the world is in the power of the wicked one. I did not know that Jesus actually said, Satan is the god of this world. My problem was, I didn't know the difference between the real Jesus and this plastic guy on the dashboard. I didn't know the difference between the real Jesus of the gospel and this organized religion's Jesus. This icon. Now I had something of a high view of Jesus as a historical figure. I would have said something like, well, Zoroaster was the prophet for his time and his culture, and Moses was the enlightened one for his time and his culture, and Jesus was the enlightened one for his time and his culture, and Buddha was the enlightened one for his time and his culture, and the Beatles and Jimi Hendrix and Bob Dylan were the ones for my time and my culture. That's what I would have thought. Seems crazy, but a lot of people thought that in the 1960s and early 1970s. Only that didn't work either. I was in Greenwich Village in Manhattan, the artist quarter of New York, sort of like what Chelsea is for London, or a combination of Camden Town and Chelsea, like the artist quarter. And I was on a street where I used to hang out called McDougal Street. And I met these people called Jesus Freaks. You had acid freaks, you had speed freaks, these were Jesus freaks. They were all people who'd been in the drug culture as I was. Many of these guys were people who came back from Vietnam strung out on heroin. And I was amazed looking at how people could come back from Vietnam addicted to very powerful Chinese heroin. Very pure Chinese heroin. 
They'd be on methadone, not to go into cold turkey, into heroin withdrawal. Like 100 milligrams a day, 120 milligrams at the max. And when they became Christians, it would stop immediately. No withdrawal, no nothing. And it wasn't just one or two, it was a lot of them. Probably thousands across the country. But I thought, well, you know, miracles can happen in any religion. Yeah, there's some kind of cosmic force. My religion was science. I don't believe what I can't prove. I've been conned by Marxism. I've been conned by Roman Catholicism. I've been conned by the Jewish community. I've been conned by the Republican Party. I've been conned by everybody and everything. I've been conned by the drug culture. I'm tired of being conned. Prove it or I don't believe it. That was my attitude. Prove it or I don't want to know. I didn't understand that a Hebrew prophet named Isaiah said this. In chapter 1, verse 18, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. The New Testament and the Old Testament, the Tanakh and the Brit Hadashah, they both give empirical evidence. You see, I came to understand that there were three fundamental differences between the real Jesus and religion. The first difference was religion was a blind faith. You need something to deal with your fear of death. You need some way to explain the unknown, so buy my product. Be a Jehovah's Witness, be a Mormon, be a Muslim, be a whatever. To me it was a business and a racket. You can't prove it, it's a blind faith. But when I saw that Jesus invited people to test him, to challenge him, to investigate his claims, other religions didn't do that. Second difference was this. All other religions had this pie-in-the-sky idea that I knew was a lie. People are basically good. People want to be basically good, but they still sin. We're made in God's image and likeness and we want to do what's right but not one of us does right always. The gospel said people are not basically good. They were created to be good but now they're basically fallen. They're slaves to sin. The third difference was this. Every religion in the world was man trying to reach God. It didn't matter if it was Catholics going to the Novena, if it was Orthodox Jews doing the mitzvot, or if it was the Jehovah's Witnesses knocking the Muslims doing the Hajj. Every religion was man trying to reach God. I was shocked when I discovered by reading the New Testament that Jesus taught against religion. Jesus is not about man trying to reach God. Jesus is about God trying to reach man. It's the opposite of religion. We can never reach God because of our sin. Come, let us reason. So I said to this Jesus freak, this hippie, hey man, you got a light? He didn't have any matches. 
but boy, did he have a light. And he began to show me things in the Bible that warranted serious investigation. But I was a skeptic. I don't believe what I can't prove. But God says, let's reason. So I set out determined to disprove the Bible. I set out determined to debunk it. I began where I was with science. These days were the days when diagnostic software was in its infancy. They were just beginning to teach future medical scientists about software programs that will help diagnose diseases based on probabilities. If you have somebody at this age, this combination of symptoms, this kind of medical history, this kind of family background, there's a 22% chance it's this, an 18% chance it's that, an 11% chance you'll get a side effect if you use this medication, just like this. So there was a lot of emphasis on those days on statistics and probability because they knew that was going to be the future of medical diagnostic technology and, and science. They knew that was going to be the future then. It was, again, an embryo compared to what it is now. They knew this was going to be the future, and there was a lot of emphasis on it. So I began to study the scriptures, and I took what I was taught in university, known as probability theorems, where you statistically analyze something according to rules of finite maths, and you look for a margin of deviation. When doesn't it hold up, and how often does it hold up? That's how you distinguish between a postulate and a working hypothesis, between a theory and a maxim, between a tentative or possible diagnosis and a diagnosis. So I took probability theorems and I applied them to biblical prophecy. I could prove with archaeology I could prove with archaeology, prove, go to the British Museum, you can prove it, that the Old Testament was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. I could prove from the Dead Sea Scrolls it was written before he was born. Imagine me saying, 800 years from now, somebody was going to be born a descendant of King David. And... 600 years before crucifixion was invented, they would crucify him, Psalm 22. And upon crucifying him, they would gamble for his clothes. That was written 800 years before he was born. Or 500 years before he was born, that he would be born in Bethlehem. And that when he was hanging on a cross, they would give him gold to drink, Psalm 69. But then things that were outrageous. He'd make Gentile nations believe in the Jewish God, Isaiah chapter 11. The world has always hated Jews since the book of Genesis. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. We hate you Jews, get out of our country. Pogroms, ha 
holocausts, inquisitions. We hate you, get out of our country. We hate you, get out. We hate you, get out. And you go to your own country, we don't want you there either. We hate you, Jew. We've always hated you. But we want to worship your God. We hate you, Jew, but we want to believe your book. We hate you, Jew, but we want to believe in your Jesus. It does not make sense why people would come to believe in a God of a people that they always hated. Why would you pick the God of one little nation who nobody has ever liked? Makes no sense. But the Bible says the Jews will exist to the end of time, and Jesus said they would be back in their land one day. There were dozens and dozens and dozens of predictions, prophecies, written hundreds of years before he was born that he could have no control over. You can't control the fact that your friend is going to betray you for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah chapter 11, the price he was be betrayed for by his friend, how could he control that? How could you control making Gentile nations believe in the Jewish God? How can you control how you were going to die or who your ancestors were or where you'd be... Be born. I had a problem. There was no margin of deviation. And I had another problem. The Bhagavad Gita was not like this. The Tibetan Book of the Dead was not like this. The Koran was not like this. The Book of Mormon was not like this. No other book could stand up to that kind of scrutiny with predictive prophecy literally happening that you could independently verify. So then I said, I want to find out what historians said about Jesus. The two biggest enemies of the Christian message were the pagan Roman government of Imperial Rome and the Jewish rabbis who rejected Jesus as the Messiah and didn't like the fact that so many other Jews were believing in him. So I read Roman historians like Tacitus and Suetonius. Roman history, pagan history, not written by Christians, confirmed that not dozens, but hundreds, hundreds of people were willing to die and see their families brutally murdered. Testifying with their dying breath, they saw Jesus Christ alive after he was dead. Some in North Africa, some in the Middle East, some in Greece, Rome, Italy. Some madman like David Carter or Jim Jones can get a lot of people in one place at one time in a suicide pact. But how can you get hundreds of people in different places at different times? Willing to die, testifying they saw somebody alive after he was dead. It just doesn't work that way. But then it goes on. I wanted to know why the rabbis rejected him. Why don't his own people, Israel, believe in him? But then I found out in the first and second century, most Christians were Jewish. His own people did believe in him. And I got something that was written by ancient rabbis 
trying to persuade Jews not to believe in him. It was called the Avodah Zerah. And it says, Jesus did miracles like no other rabbi. That he made the blind see, the deaf hear, and the lame walk, that he could even raise the dead, and his followers, his disciples, did these miracles in his name. Then after he was crucified by the Romans at Passover, he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. That was not from the New Testament. That was from the rabbinic literature. That was not written by Jews who believed in him. That was written by Jews who were against him. It is one thing when your followers say you rose from the dead. It's one thing when your followers say you did miracles. It's one thing when your followers say you could heal people. But it's another thing when your enemies admit it's true. It got to the point where it took me more faith to reject it than it did to accept it. And I'm convinced if anybody will give Jesus a fair hearing, when they put him on trial, his trial was not fair. It was a kangaroo trial. But if you give him a fair trial, you'll find out he was innocent. Now, if he was not telling the truth, they should have crucified him. He was the biggest deceiver in history. But if he was telling the truth, they should have crucified you and me for our sin. But he went to that cross in our place. But there's more. You see, not only are there hundreds of prophecies about his first coming, there are hundreds of prophecies about his second coming. There will be famines. There's food surpluses in Europe, but more people starve to death now than ever before. More food than ever before, more starvation than ever before. More agricultural technology than ever before, more people die for want of food. More of a biomedical industrial base now. More pharmacology than ever before, more medicine than ever before, more people die of pestilence. Jesus said there'll be pestilence. An increase in seismic activity, more earthquakes, higher on the Richter scale, and more frequent, even causing tsunamis now. Seismologists tell us, the geologists say, this has never happened before in recorded history to this degree, and it's getting worse. The weather changes, it says in the book of Revelation, let us destroy those who are destroying the earth. But there's even more than that. The Hebrew prophet Daniel said, those countries that were in the Roman Empire will come together into a non-democratic Europe in the last days and bring the Antichrist to power. And Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trampled down by the feet of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is completed and all the nations will come against Jerusalem. It is no coincidence (coughs) that the same countries that were at the center of world events in the Bible are at the center of world events today. What was in the Bible? Israel, Syria, Jordan, Egypt. What countries today? 
The same ones. Iran, Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, Israel, Syria. The just what the Bible said. American and British troops are fighting in Babylon. Jesus said, when you see the Jews back in Jerusalem, it's the beginning of the end. And he said, when you begin to see Jews coming to believe in him again, it's the beginning of the end. More Jews, including my own children, have come to faith in Jesus in the last 15 years than in the last 18 centuries. The New Testament says the first Christians were Jews and the last Christians will be Jews, and it's happening. The same as every prophecy, every prediction of his first coming happened. Every prophecy and every prediction of his second coming is happening. Only when he comes again, it's not going to be the same as the first time. The first time he came, he came to pay the price for what I did. He came to be nailed to the cross for every drug I ever sold. He came to be nailed for the cross for every cigarette I ever smoked. He came to be nailed for the cross for every girl I ever fornicated with. So I wouldn't have to go to the hell that I should have gone to. But when he comes again, it's not going to be like that. Now he's angry. He's angry. They're not going to crucify him this time. He may come tonight for you or for me. Now again, if he's lying, you have nothing to worry about. But if he's not a liar, if he was telling the truth, and I tried to prove him a liar, and I couldn't, you are in big trouble unless you really repent of your sin and trust him for your salvation. Again, I point to little Amelia, the baby. Who would not lay down their life for their own child? That's how much God loved us when he became a man and went to the cross in our place. The world is in the power of the wicked one. Who's going to put the world right? Jesus came that the works of Satan would be destroyed. When he comes back, there'll be no more famines in Africa. There'll be no more wars in the Middle East. There'll be no more Muslims persecuting Christians in Sudan where they've killed 3.2 million Christians and nobody says a word about it. There'll be no more pornography on television. There won't be a Jerry Springer opera mocking him at Christmas time. They wouldn't have the guts to mock Mohammed on BBC. No, there'll be no more internet porn. There'll be no more homosexuals adopting children. There'll be no more pollution. There'll be no more injustice. There'll be no more sin. I want to leave you with one thing. Because of our work in Africa, because of our work with the AIDS orphans and the HIV children, a question that people often ask me in many countries is this. If your God is such a God of love, if he's so powerful, how can he let these children die?
How can he let these wars and famines happen? How can he allow a tsunami to happen? If the world is in the power of the wicked one and your God is good, why doesn't he stop the wickedness? Oh, don't worry. My God is going to stop the wickedness. Let me tell you why he hasn't done it already. The reason my God has not stopped the wickedness in this world is because despite your wickedness, he loves you and wants to forgive you and doesn't want to destroy you with it. He's giving you a chance to turn to him and ask him to forgive you and to give you a new life. He's asking you to accept what he did for you on the cross. He's going to destroy this place. He's going to destroy all the wicked. But he doesn't want to destroy you with it. Don't be a fool. The world does not work. They can have G8 summits from now ad infinitum. It still won't work. You can have revolutions. It still won't work. You can get rid of colonialism. It still won't work. You can get rid of apartheid. It still won't work. You can get rid of injustice. It still won't work. The world is in the power of the wicked one. In fact, the only way the world can work at all is if it runs on God's principles. Is it God's principles that children should be born without two loving, caring parents to bring them up in holy wedlock? No, it is not. Is it God's principle that there should be alcohol and drug abuse? No, it is not. Is it God's principle that human sexuality should be degraded to something animalistic on the internet? No, it is not. <laughs> The best thing you can do for the world is to be saved out of it and give your life to Jesus. Amen. I know what Jesus did for me. And I know what he wants to do for you. If you're not a Christian, you are under the judgment of an angry, holy, perfect God that is going to hold every one of us accountable. When I stand in front of him, There'll be a big rap sheet. You did this, 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 this. You were a cocaine dealer. You pimped off that girl. You were not, you did this. You... Yes, I did. I'm not proud of it, but I did it. I have one plea. That God became a man and was nailed to the cross to pay the price for what I did. No matter who you are, you're as guilty as I was. How many lies do you have to tell to be a liar? Jesus said, you lust after somebody's wife or husband, it's as good as sleeping with them. Jesus said, you hate somebody, it's as good as murdering them. We are all guilty. You are guilty. There's not a lawyer who can get you off. Hell is a real place. And forever is a long time. After a billion years, you won't even have begun to serve your sentence. It'll be outside of time. No way out. You'll have no way out. But you have a way out today. Amen. You ask Jesus to forgive you. If you do what I did, 
He will do for you what he did for me. Amen. He's already paid the price for your sin. He made his move. He's waiting for you to make yours. If you're not saved, if you're not living for Jesus, if you're not following him on the basis of his word, and you walk out that door having had a chance, you're the most sad and foolish of all people. One day, everybody in this room is going to agree with every word I said. You know why? Because it's not my word, it's God's. One day, everybody in this room is going to be confronted with the fact you heard the truth. I gave you a way of escape. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If you're not saved, you can get saved today. I'll be here after this service. I'm going to ask the girls to sing one more hymn. I'll be here to talk to anybody with a few others about your need to meet Jesus. The devil votes that you walk out that door and go to hell. God has already voted that you accept the atonement that Jesus made for your sin. Now the decision is yours. Life or death, light or dark, good or evil, Heaven or hell, salvation or damnation. Don't be a fool. Come to Jesus and come to him now. God bless.